The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Greetings, everyone. Special welcome to new folks to Common Ground. Some of you know, uh, once a month, I just remind folks how the center operates, and it's really meant to be a, a general approach to life that's in alignment with the practice that we do. Mostly, you know, with our scheming, fear-based, desire-based mind, we're always looking for um, a little bit of a gain. And we do that even with things we love, like our partners, our family members, even your little children, those of you with kids, you know. There's a little, you may not think about it as a war, but you know, it's a power play all the time. And we have that with the institutions we love, like Common Ground and the society we live in. And we're always at play. And uh, instead of operating in that way, Common Ground specifically chose to operate in a way that uh, has more of the flavor of love and generosity and joy. And so we practice here at the center offering everything freely, no strings attached. And, of course, it only happens because all the volunteers and all the people who contributed in the past and were here because of them. Not just the recent past, but even in terms of the spiritual ancestors that passed these teachings along. So we want to practice receiving whatever you get from being here. You want to practice receiving it as a free gift so that it makes you happy. And uh, it's work, because it's not our habit to be able to receive a gift freely. We just assume, it's such a deep habit, to assume that there's some strings attached, like what do they want back, or something like that. And then only when you're receiving a gift freely, you might feel inspired, just because it makes you happy, to do something in return, to have good wishes for the community or to practice sincerely or to volunteer your time, your skills, to contribute money. And again, to do that in a way that makes you happy. So as we receive whatever receive we receive by being here, we see, can it make me happy? How can it make me happy? And when we give in any way that you decide to give, how can that be a cause for happiness? If we give too much, it won't feel good. If we somehow think, I don't need to give, or I'm getting away with not having to give, that doesn't feel good. The stingy mind doesn't feel good either. So how to find, like, to really, not it's not a trick, you know, like a trick to get more money or something like that. It's a practice. It's actually, it would be, in some ways, a lot easier just to charge a fee or have a suggested donation or something like that. But to really put the responsibility back on each of us to find a way to be happy in life. And then common ground just happens to be a specific training ground for being happy for each of us. And then what we learn as we negotiate our relationship with this small institution, then we can use some of those lessons to negotiate how we are with our partners, our friends, our jobs, all the other places in the community that we have relationships. Like how can this relationship be a cause for happiness. Instead of, normally it's a cause for war, you know. 
I mean, even our harmonious relationships generally are strategic and manipulative and at least at times heavy. And so we're trying to do just the opposite. And it really makes the, uh, you know, as a community and as an institution, organization, it protects us, this way we operate. So you can think about that. Feel free to ask questions if you have any about that or check with the office staff later if you want more specific information. There is a handout by the donation ball that has a few more specifics. So most of you know, but if you're new, you might not know. We've been following a book called Mindfulness, a Practical Guide to Awakening, written by Joseph Goldstein. just came out this fall. Joseph is one of the senior teachers in this particular lineage of Buddha's teachings that in the West we call sometimes insight meditation or vipassana meditation coming out of the Theravada Buddhist tradition from places like Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka and Laos and Cambodia, a few other places. So this stream of Buddhism is very much tied to these historic teachings of the Buddha that are recorded in what's called the Pali Canon. Uh, Pali is a language spoken around the time of the Buddha. And Joseph has written a book based on this very famous collection of teachings called the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Given by the Buddha, sometimes translated as the Ways of Establishing Mindfulness. And over the last number of months, we've looked at three of those four ways already. Mindfulness of the body is one way to establish mindfulness. Mindfulness of the feeling tone. So whenever we have an experience, whether it's a mental or physical experience, we see immediately right there with the experience its pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality. You can't have an experience that the mind doesn't assess as or see it as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. The mind just does that with experiences, and it does it based on past conditioning. So even if it's a brand new experience, you've never had it before, the mind will work hard to relate it to something, or maybe it's unpleasant because it's new and unfamiliar. But it will always have a feeling tone associated with it. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third is just aware of the general shape, the general qualities there in the mind. In other words, is the mind in a contracted, unskillful shape? Or is the mind in a more open, happy, skillful state? But of course, there are many qualities to unskillfulness that can be seen, many qualities related to skillfulness that can be seen. So it's really getting this fluency. Can you know the mind? Can you see how the mind is? Now this fourth category or fourth foundation of practice is a little bit um, more involved, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Because what we're doing is we're learning the different maps the Buddha used to describe the mind. So the Buddha is saying you should know your body experience, you should know the experience of feeling tone, you should know the mind, and you should know your experience through the lens of these maps. Now let's just think for a moment. This fourth foundation, by the way, is sometimes translated as mindfulness of mental objects. I don't think that's a very good translation, but it's the historic way it was translated. Maybe a better way 
categories of experience, mindfulness of the different categories of experience. But I actually like, I don't know anybody, you know, academics who use this, but maps of experience. The mindfulness of experience using the Buddhist or the Buddha's maps that he sort of used to articulate the mind, to describe the uh, texture, qualities, movements of mind. And there are several of these maps, and they're like those old uh, aerial photographs, you know, before they had more sophisticated satellite sort of imaging. They'd fly over a land, and they'd take a bunch of pictures, and then they'd lay them out, you know, because a lot of the photographs would overlap the other one. And you'd get sort of eventually a nice map. And it's the same with these different lists. They're meant to be memorized so that you can recall them. They're in your experience, living your life, you're having experiences, and you recall the different maps, the different descriptions of the mind's experience that the Buddha gave, and it will illuminate your experience. In the same way, if I asked you to, you know, had a contest. Everyone had an hour to go explore the neighborhood and come back and see, you know, what you saw. Describe what you saw. And half of you, you know, I gave you an hour first to look at a very detailed map that showed, you know, all the homes, where the fences, nice fences are, where the yards are that aren't very well kept and the yards that are very well kept and the, you know, houses that have chipping paint and so very detailed map, all the interesting things are there, where the chickens are, where the dogs are. And other people, they didn't have anything. You studied the map, and then when you walk through the neighborhood, you use the map. You'd come back, you'd have a much richer understanding of what that neighborhood's like than somebody who didn't have a map. The map makes it so much easier to see what's there. A good map makes it easy to see what's there. And that's this fourth foundation of mindfulness. We're using the maps that that were developed by somebody with a lot of insight. I mean, the Buddha, by definition, you know, that word Buddha is a title for somebody who awakens without the help of a Buddha. So we can't be Buddhas. I mean, technically speaking, We can be fully awake. We can have the same insight of a Buddha. But technically, we wouldn't get the title Buddha. We'd have the title a fully awake being, which is arahat, is the word. We can't be a Buddha because these instructions are really useful for waking up. And a Buddha doesn't have the, you know, advantage of hearing the teachings. They do it when there are no teachings. Now, in the sort of cosmology of Buddhism... There are many, there have been many, many Buddhas. But a Buddha arises only when the previous teaching of the previous Buddha have been forgotten. And then that's how they can become a, a Buddha, because they're doing it without the support of the teachings. So we have the support of these maps. These maps are to be heard and to be memorized and then to be reflected on so that just in the course of living, they just come up. So this will take many months to go through these different lists. It's the much, by, uh, you know, I don't know, many times the most important part, or the longest part at least, of this discourse on the 
four foundations of mindfulness because there's a lot here in this last foundation. The first set that the Buddha, the first map the Buddha asks us to memorize is the five hindrances. So specifically the Buddha is saying, friends, there are tendencies of our minds that, he used the word, that are in circulars. That's not a word we hear too much. So there are tendencies, processes of mind that tend to encircle the mind. What we would normally use is tendencies that catch the mind or holes that the mind falls into, dramas that the mind gets caught in. You know, dramas that have feedback loops so that there's a certain coherence that once the mind is involved in that vortex, it's not so easy to get out of. And the, the root of that term in circulars is uh, in the tropics, maybe, maybe also around here, but in the tropics there are these plants that have very small seeds and they have fruits and the birds eat the fruits and then they fly into the big trees and they poop. And the poop goes on the branches of the big trees. And probably a lot of birds have pooped before them. And so there's enough sustenance that those tiny little seeds begin to grow right there on the branches. And, you know, especially in humid climates, there's enough moisture right there to grow. And very slowly, but persistently, these plants you know, slowly grow up and take over the canopy and slowly grow down and begin very slowly to encircle the tree so that you might see this huge, massive tree that actually used to be another tree that's now completely embedded inside of what looks like a tree with a lot of integrity, but it completely took over the superstructure of the previous tree. And there's nothing left. You can't see it anymore. And this is the image the Buddha used for the hindrances. So what are the five hindrances? And like I said, this is a good list to memorize. Now you could divide up all the things that hinder balance in your mind, all the things that hinder calm and steadiness and uh, ease of mind, clarity of mind. You could divide it any number of ways. But, you know, the Buddha maybe had just the right, like not too many and not too few. I mean, we could, if we brainstorm, we could probably come up with 30 or 50 tendencies, pretty regular tendencies that encircle our mind or that we get caught in. But that's too many to work with, you know. Or you could have one, you know, like ignorance. <laughs> we get caught in delusion. But that, that doesn't really clarify what's going on in the mind. So we wanted more nuance than one, but not too many. So the Buddha had five. makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because they come in pairs. So the first two pairs, greed or the desire for sense experience, and ill will or aversion. You see, it's a, they're both a struggle with things as they are. One is like wanting something, and the other is not wanting something. So you see, it's a nice pair. It's easy to remember. Like in terms of wanting to understand your own mind, the experience of your own mind, is this mind wanting something, leaning forward energetically, 
or not wanting something, struggling or pushing away? That's a clarifying question. You see how it illuminates our experience when we ask the question, pushing away, leaning forward. Or the other two, the next two, is the mind dull and heavy? Or is the mind restless and anxious? And the last is doubt. Not a wholesome kind of doubt. There's a wholesome kind of doubt where we remain skeptical until we've had time to really see clearly what's going on. But this is a unwholesome kind of doubt that just, it's like um, we're so certain that we don't know that we keep obsessing about not knowing what's going on and never bother to sink in. So, of course we're not going to know what's going on when we're obsessively thinking that we don't know what's going on. Because we're not, in a sense, paying attention. We're not opening or looking to see what's going on. And this happens a lot, you know, where our mind just spins but doesn't really land or ground anywhere. The Buddha had several potent images. So I gave you one about the encirculars of the mind. Another is, um, he says, this is the Buddha, just as a great mass of fire of 10, 20, 30, or 40 cartloads of timber were burning. And into it, a person would periodically throw dried grass, dried cow dung, dried timber, so that that great mass of fire, thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance. So, think about this in terms of what our own mind does. Thus nourished, thus sustained, would burn for a long, long time. Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance. This literally translated as flammable phenomena. So what are we giving attention to? So, so much in the practice is, is having enough steadiness of attention, steady mindful, st- uh, steady mindful awareness, so that we can see what the mind is doing. Like, what is the mind attending to? And with what attitude? So, we can look at an attractive person with one attitude, and we can look at an attractive person with another attitude. We can look at somebody's cell phone with one attitude, and we can look at it in another attitude. So, in this room right now, what is the mind attending to, and with what attitude? We could be doing something with our mind right now that would stir things up quite a bit. Or we could do, be doing something else with our mind that might settle things down quite a bit. Now the question is, can we notice what the mind is doing, and whether it's something that's stirring things up, or something that's settling things down? So there's a little more to this quote. Um, Even so, practitioners, and one who keeps focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance, craving develops. With craving as condition, sustenance. Right? Because craving gives sustenance to the fire, adds fuel to the fire. With sustenance as a condition, becoming. So when there's fire, the fire of becoming you become. You know, I'm burning with desire. So I'm literally 
in my mind, burning with desire, with craving, I'm literally creating, I'm propelling myself into the future, the one who wants to get this, the one who's now going to act on my desire. So I'm setting something in motion. In Buddhism, we call that the coming. With sustenance as condition, becoming. With becoming as condition, birth. With birth as condition, aging, illness, death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair all come into play. Thus is the origin of this entire mass of suffering and stress. So this world, as we know it, which comes, of course, complete with stress and vulnerability and competition and struggle and also a certain share of beauty and ease, right? It's not all difficult. But this difficult, the part of life that is limited and challenging, it comes in this lawful way through craving we have the sustenance, the continuation of the burning, this underlying uneasiness of the heart. Think of this raging fire as the uneasiness of the heart, and the throwing fuel into the fire is the mind's unskillful understanding of the uneasiness of the heart. So all of us, not being fully awake, there is an uneasiness of the heart. You could call it anxiety or an underlying fear that's not about anything in particular. So when you peel away all the things, it's still there, or an underlying neediness. So it has different flavors, or different people interpret this underlying dis-ease or uneasiness differently, but it's really the same uneasiness. That's with the sustenance, that's the kind of feeding the flames. So that burning leads to becoming. And the becoming is the mind's ineffective response to the burning. I'm burning. I'm uneasy. So I imagine when I go home, I'm going to give myself a carrot. You can read the novel that I'm now engrossed in that I don't want to put down, right? So that's the little carrot I dangle. Or you get to go to sleep. Or you can have something sweet to eat. Or, you know, whatever... Like, this is how we get through the life. It's like, okay, I'll continue living as long as there's something sweet at the end. Or, you know, we're, we're basically, all of us, to differing, differing degrees, we're suckers for a little pleasantness. Or for escaping a little unpleasantness. You know, like, I'll be happy if I can go home and clip this little hangnail on my fingernail. You know? Well, I've got something in my mouth and, you know, I don't care about anything else. I don't care about global warming, but just give me some floss in a private place <laughs> to get this thing out of my mouth. Isn't that true that these little things can drive us crazy? You know, you accidentally put on a pair of pants that are too tight <clears throat> and all day long. It's like, I can't wait. I'll be free when I can just take these things off. This is like our entrapment, is that we keep, one way or another, we keep getting trapped in these, feeding the fuel to this fire that this next thing will make me happy. And 
this is how we get thrown around by life, is our response to the uneasiness is always some action that supports the flames of the uneasiness, adds fuel to the uneasiness. We keep responding to the basic existential uneasiness by taking it personally and acting to take care of ourselves from this personal point of view. But of course, the more we rarefy that personal point of view, the more uneasy we are because the uneasiness comes out of the sense of separation itself. Thinking there's somebody who needs to resolve his or her uneasiness is what creates the uneasiness. Taking existential uneasiness personally creates and supports and fuels the uneasiness. This is the trap we're in. And in Buddhism, we call this samsara, the never-ending cycles of suffering or dis-ease. And it's based on not seeing what's going on. Assuming that this unease refers back to a person and then trying to resolve it based on that assumption reinforces the fire, the burning, the uneasiness of heart. And so that's why the Buddha then goes on to say, just as if a great mass of fire were burning, into which a person would, uh, a person simply would not periodically throw dry grass, dried cow dung, dry timber, so that the great mass of fire, its original sustenance being consumed, and no other being offered would, without nourishment, go out. Even so, practitioners and one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance, the fuel, right? So, in the first case, when you're adding fuel, that means you're focusing on the allure of those phenomena that offer sustenance, that feed the flames. In the second case, you're... um, one who keeps focusing on the drawbacks of those phenomena that offer sustenance. This is the basic teaching from the Buddha on craving. How to fuel craving and the uneasiness that comes from it and how to put it out. Now, there's an important point here. If you would simply not continue adding cow dung and timber and dried grass to the flames, then it would slowly die out. It won't immediately disappear, which is what we want. Okay, okay, you convinced me. I'm not going to, let's say you're obsessing about something, you know, whatever it might be. Everyone else has a hybrid car. You want a hybrid car now to fit in, you know, because you don't want people to think you're, you don't care about global warming and whatever your motivation might be, even if it's really wholesome, but you have this passionate desire to get the, the right hybrid car. And, uh, and then you realize, like, what a setup it is, you know, the craving for it. It doesn't mean you're not going to get it, but it means you don't imagine that whether you get it or whether you don't get it, it's going to any, have anything to do with your lasting happiness. The happiness of your heart actually isn't a function of the car that you have. I know that's surprising. Because <laughs> the way we act, it seems like it is. But it isn't, actually. And so let's say you get that. So 
you still may be putting the appropriate time in to figure out like if you should and which one you should get and things like that. But you're not doing it imagining that it's going to have a lot to do with your deep, resonant happiness. So then you're not adding fuel to the fire. But because for so long we have imagined that if only I get the hybrid car, the this, the that, this promotion, that recognition from the person who never recognizes me, then I'll be happy. So for so long we've been doing that, that fire is not going to go immediately out just because we realize, you know, don't get uptight about whether you get a hybrid car or not. I mean, if you can and it works out and it fits in the budget, fine. If it doesn't, you know, just do the best you can. So that pain is still there, maybe a little bit more under the surface. The pain of the flames are still there. So you might put down the obsessiveness, the craving around the hybrid, but because that uneasiness from the flames are still there, it's very easy to pick it up again. Oh no, but, you know, just a simple thought might appear in your mind of you cruising through the city in your hybrid looking at all those SUVs, <laughs> feeling threatened by all those people on bicycles who are even more cool than you, <laughs> or walking. So something like that can catch you, and then immediately you could start throwing more fuel into the fire. i got to figure, i got to do it right, because I want to be the cool one, you know, whatever that means for you, the one who's you know, doing the right thing. This is, for, you know, people show up here, this is as much of a place of craving as, you know, wanting to be some kind of great power broker, corporate power broker, oppressing the <laughs> per consumers. And, <laughs> you know, it's like being cool, being just, or, you know, being politically correct. These are things that, people can get caught in and suffer with just as much as wanting to be some corporate overlord or whatever else somebody might want to become. So, again, the Buddha says, would without nourishment go out, right? Slowly. So we have to, we have, to have the continuity of mindfulness so that the flames are still there so we have to be mindful that we don't fall back into the habit of wanting, of craving, of imagining that if only then I'll be happy. So we have, there needs to be this real vigilance or continuity of mindfulness because the tendency, the burning, and our habit of reacting to the burning by desiring, right? Because that desire, so much of our desiring, our craving, comes from trying to scratch this existential itch. The heart's uneasy. Well, what can I give myself to feel better? I'll give myself this entertaining program to watch. Or I'll give myself this phone call. Or I'll look over here for something entertaining. Because we don't like just to feel the embers of the fire. Even though we're not throwing any fuel in, there's still an uneasiness of the heart. Can we be patient? as things cool down. Because peace comes in slowly, initially especially. 
because we've stirred up so much uneasiness just in our day, especially when we're, you know, in environments that are triggering a lot of those ways of burning. Then even when we have an hour in the evening to sit, or whatever you have, it takes some time. So much of our sit, or you go on a retreat, you know, the joke in Buddhist circles for people who do a lot of retreat practices, you know, half-day retreat, day-long retreat, even a weekend retreat, you're basically in hell for most of that time. You really need a longer retreat for things to cool down a little bit. And so people who only do short retreats, you learn a lot. I'm not saying it's not valuable. It's very valuable to do shorter retreats, but they're not necessarily pleasant. You know, the majority of the experience is unpleasant with hopefully just enough pleasantness to keep you from running away and keep coming back. But often it's, it's, it's difficult because the fires are still blazing, but now we're not distracting ourselves from the blazing fire. We're just doing our best not to throw fuel in. And then when we do throw fuel into the fire, we have to immediately forgive ourselves because if we hate ourselves for throwing fuel into the fire, that turns out to be more fuel. And it's just over and over again. And ignoring it is its own kind of fuel. Like, I just don't want to, you know, and people on retreats, they start doing crazy things like looking for any distraction. And generally, there aren't many. So they start reading, like, the labels on shampoo bottles and <laughs> dredging up old memories or even, like, trying to remember song lyrics from a song that they used to sing when they were a teeny bopper. You know, oh, what was that lyric? And then they, like, obsessively try to figure it out or things like this. Anything but to feel the embers, you know, as the fires go out. So there's, in practice, and especially in terms of working with the hindrances, we have to have this patience for, now we're being skillful, we're not fueling the fires, but we have to be patient, like, oh, this is what it feels like to have been previously fueling the fires, right? That's what we call, in Buddhism, karma. That's the karmic fruit from having been previously unskillful. We don't go immediately into bliss land. We have to feel the effects of having been a raging maniac for much of the day. I mean, if we had videotapes of, like, the times when we were eating when no one else was around, (laughs) I mean, (laughs) close-ups with good audio. I mean, it would be embarrassing to show it to other people, at least in my case. (laughs) Some of you might be more dignified, or you have this neurotic sense that somebody's watching you and you better behave, (laughs) which itself is its own kind of torment. So part of the practice is having this continuity of awareness where we're not not, uh, willing to fall back in. We've seen ourselves fall back into the fire, feeding the fire so many times that vigilance gets born out of it. Sharon Salzberg calls this the torment of continuity. It's intense to inspire the mind to have continuity of awareness. Because initially, in practice, it feels like a personal endeavor to be mindful. I don't think there's any way around it. Because initially, we have to personally counter the tendency to be distracted and superficial. So we make a personal effort to remember, oh, it's like this now. This is what the mind's doing. This is how it is. And as soon as we stop making that personal effort, 
we fall back into distractedness and superficiality. But ultimately, mindfulness turns out to be effortless. But initially, when that happens, that's a huge insight to see that knowing, the knowing mind is already there doing its work. But initially, we, it has to feel personal and it will feel problematic. It will feel intense or like uh, a heavy responsibility. But we'll, we'll take it up when we realize that the alternative is much worse. As difficult as it is to be mindful more and more of the time, it's much more dangerous to be distracted. Because whatever the mind sets in motion when it's distracted and superficial, we have to deal with. It's not like we can't, you know, it's like we get away with it. It's like whatever the mind sets in motion, every time we take another spin obsessing with fear, with worry, with anxiety, with craving and lust or whatever it might be, that makes a very real imprint on the heart. doesn't matter whether anybody else sees you. The heart sees it, the heart knows it, and the imprint is there, and that imprint has to fade. And the Buddha used the image of it fades when you starve it. And how do you starve it? By not feeding it. And how do you feed it? By getting identified with the pain, taking the pain, the existential ache or uneasiness personally, and then acting on that decision that it's personal. And then you feed it. So we have to be with this. Just the other day I was listening to a talk and this person was quoting Reb Anderson, a wonderful Zen teacher from California. He's been coming to Minnesota for, I think, a couple decades now to teach for some in some of the Zen centers in town. And uh, evidently, he was having a dokusan, a practice interview with one of his students, and he asked the student, um, what did the Buddha teach? Oh, no, no. It was, uh, what's the difference between you an ordinary person, and a Buddha. And uh, then Reb answered his own question. He said, a Buddha knows all the time that she is vulnerable, and an ordinary person only knows that some of the time. And so this, I think, really uh, connects with our willingness to keep feeling the embers. So either it's a raging fire, or it's a relatively cool fire. But as long as there's any uneasiness of the heart, we have to feel it, we have to know it. Otherwise, the underlying uneasiness is going to trigger reactive behavior, reactive thinking, neurotic thinking that will fuel it. And it's only by keeping it in view and understanding what it is that wisdom can be there say, no, no, you don't need to react. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be resistant. You can actually, its the best thing to do, honey, is to befriend it, to stay close to it. I'll give just another example of this and then open it up for discussion. But um, in a more of a community way, um, Joanna Macy, this wonderful Buddhist teacher and environmentalist, and activist um, had this wonderful uh, idea 
this is back, I mean, it's still a big deal, but it's sort of, you don't hear about it nearly as much, but back in the day, you know, nuclear power plants were a big deal, and a lot of activists got involved, and, and part of the reason it's a big deal is nobody knows what to do with the nuclear wastes, and uh, except pretend that it's not a problem. <laughs> That's our big strategy. We'll just, we'll deal with it. <laughs> Someday technology will catch up, and uh, we'll know what to do with this stuff. So, and that's kind of the idea, you know, part of that sort of pretend it's not a problem is like, let's bury it in some really deep place, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's fine for a while, you know, and we always forget that for a while we'll end, and then something else will happen, you know, like, you know, the earth will shift or something. But anyway, I thought she had a brilliant idea that really... Uh, is in line with the deepest aspects of the practice. So her idea, instead of burying this stuff, you know, a mile below the surface or however far, far down, they're thinking of doing it in some desolate place in Nevada or wherever, is actually to build a beautiful, obvious monument, something so big and obvious, you know, like these great temples that, you know, you cannot not recognize. So you build a a great temple, and you put it in that, and then you develop uh, a priesthood or a priestesshood, <laughs> a group of people, community of people, whose sole purpose is to live in the temple and to help everybody not forget <laughs> what's inside the temple, right? Like a monument to human stupidity, perhaps, or a monument to, like, let's not forget the lesson here. You know, and our sole purpose as the, you know, the caretakers of this temple is to help people remember. And that's a little bit what we have to do with the pain in our heart, the uneasiness of our heart. That ignorance, by definition, ignorance in a Buddhist sense is this ineffective, inefficient response to this underlying existential anxiety, which is to hide, to run, to pretend it ain't so. And that doesn't work. All of the neurotic things in our society are just the collect, you know, it just comes out of this collective response to ignore the ache in the heart, the uneasiness in the heart, to react to it, to hide from it, to want to get rid of it. And it, and it just gets acted out with war and injustice and different ways that we harm each other. So instead, we want to remember it. So that's why the first map the Buddha says we should memorize and learn is the map of the five hindrances. How can we keep these five things in view? Sensual greed, ill will, aversion, restlessness and dullness, and doubt. How can we keep them in view and how they're just the the different flames of this basic uneasiness of the heart that we call dukkha, or stress. So stress manifests as greed, as ill will, as doubt, as restlessness, as dullness. These are just ineffective strategies that humans use to manage the uneasiness of our heart, and these strategies are what fuel the fires of, un, of uneasiness. 
So I'll leave it here so that we'll, of course, keep coming back to this for a couple months, these different hindrances. But there's about 12 minutes left. It would be nice to hear from people. I'm sure you've been learning things in your life, just paying attention. We can't help but see these hindrances. Or any questions you have about the talk? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, thanks, Tim, for sharing that. And I think part of it is just, you know, we always feel so apart. But, you know, we're not that different than trees. And the sap begins to flow this time of year. We just have more energy. And that, I think, amplifies this uneasiness, just kind of, or even, you know, being part of our sort of mammal instincts of hibernating. Now we're waking up. But can we trust it? I mean, that sort of uneasiness. But it's really good because... Part of the flames, you know, part of feeding the flames is our mind's resistance to being embodied. And by embodied, I mean exactly like we're embodied in these weather systems, we're embodied in this body, we're embodied in society. Like this life is contained by so many parameters that we can do only one thing with, except because it's like this is the nature of this existence, not being in control. Yeah. One of the things that while I was sitting was what's like my mind was memories. Memories? Memories. And like memory of myself at 18. Like this has been a theme that's been going through my mind in the last several months where I've been caught in memories and having to do with loss. But see, it might not be either of those. Is it Rob? Yeah. yeah. It may not be either of those, Rob. So if you didn't hear, you he was just talking about noticing a flow of memory. And uh, well, I'm using that word flow because that's exactly what we want. The problem isn't the flow of memory and the poignancy of the emotions associated with the memories. 
in a way that can be quite purifying if the mind can leave it alone, like let it move. Can it be okay for that feeling, those feelings, those images, the content, whatever, to just move? And it's when the mind reflexively, out of habit, resists or wants to hold because it's a pleasant memory or hide from or push away because it's unpleasant. Then that's the fueling. Because there is part of the practice as we, you know, just become more mindful. It's it's almost as if we're loosening some screws and things just start to move a little bit more. Body energies, emotional energies, creative energies, things just are a little less tight. And uh, we might not know what to do with all that increased movement. And so neurotically, we might think we have to control it or resist the unpleasant parts or hold on. Oh, this is great. I'm feeling so light, so creative. I want to own it and keep it and bottle it so it's always there for me. But of course, that's that's tightening the screws again. Yeah. Other thoughts? You have a couple more minutes. Yeah, James. Uh, just going back a little bit to your talk, but when you were talking about how two-day retreats uh, are just painful. <laughs> I don't want to... Yeah, I did, say, <laughs> I did say something like that, but it's not entirely true. <laughs> it feels pretty painful, honestly. Um, and I was thinking, because I, I talked to you a little bit after I came back from my month-long retreat, which is already two years ago. Right. I was thinking, I had the sense for just a moment while sitting tonight, what it was like after three and a half weeks, like that time when everything finally settled down. And, then, you know, I had to laugh that it took three and a half weeks to, like, get into a space where you're just like, ah. But I had this other thought that how cool that is every once in a while, this sort of similar thread to what he's talking about, that that peace carries into many, many moments in my life. It isn't just when I'm on my seat. Uh, but if I really look at, you know, clarity and what comes from actually sitting, you know, when the mind goes somewhere, it never forgets. That's right. Uh, that is both good and bad. You know, that's sort of the, it's all good, but it's, it's uh, the negative stuff has a lot of weight, but it, it's really clear when your mind settles find the way back. Yeah. Because the, the subtleness of mind isn't back there at the three and a half week mark of your retreat. What you realize there is something about the nature of the mind. Right? So like the Buddha's famous line is the mind is radiant and pure but this radiance and purity is obscured by visiting defilements. So what we realize when things settle with whether it's in the middle of a long retreat or just a moment when everything comes together just right and the mind settles, what we realize is something that's always there but is almost always obscured because of the flames. So the flames are just this activity that gets the attention of the mind obsessively. The mind obsessively notices the flames. And it's not so easy to see through the flames into the let's say, space of the mind or space of the heart. 
But when the, the flames cool down, like on a long retreat, then it's a little bit easier, or maybe a lot easier, to see the nature of the mind, the empty, pure, radiant nature of the mind. But once, as James says, once the mind sees that nature of the mind, it's really hard to forget. You have to actually work at being neurotic for a long time to really forget it. And if you sustain your practice of remembering it, then it becomes quite a force that even when you're in the middle of getting uh, caught in anger and you're actually acting it out, there might even be, even in those intense moments of your life, a thread of remembrance. And that thread is like a little wormhole back to space. And it's like the anger has a certain porousness. It's not as real as it used to be. It's there, you're acting it out, you might do some unskillful things, but there's part of the mind that isn't really invested in being the angry one. And then the more, of course, the more and more we practice, that porousness begins to undermine the possibility as being as angry and acting it out in such a deluded way as we might have in the past. Thanks for sharing those story, that story with us, James. Time for maybe one more person, if there's anybody else. Yes, I don't know your name. Therese. That's right. I think that's right in line with the practice. Whether you use the word love or whether you use the word like welcoming or accepting or welcome uh, or uh, including the experience or whether you use a word like being open or mindful of what is real, what is arising here and now. They're all pointing to the same practice. And the Buddha would say this is the only way. Not that you have to be a Buddhist that that the heart has to find its way of opening and including and loving and accepting things as they actually are. That's the way forward. And it's a good place to end. So we'll just take enough time to take a breath or two together and let go of the words. Grateful for these wise teachings from our teacher, the Buddha, and all the many ancestors. Each of them had a busy life, complications just as we do. They heard the teachings, they reflected on the teachings, they developed these teachings, 
and they share these teachings so that one generation after another, they have landed here at this time, at this corner in Minneapolis, and now we're the recipients. It's our time in our busy lives to do the best we can do, to practice, to hear the teachings, memorize, reflect, practice, wake up to these teachings, and then model the fruit of these practices, be part of the causes and conditions for happiness and peace and freedom from suffering. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.